I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back for another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This week, we're happy to welcome on Aaron Oberholzer. Aaron is a former PGA Tour player who made his way into the top 25 in the world rankings and won the 2006 Pebble Beach Pro-Am. His career was cut short by injuries, uh, so now he is a regular contributor on the Golf Channel. Aaron, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. I'm excited. Yeah, it's uh, it's always nice when you know you got a guy that can talk uh, great golf courses and architecture, and also can uh, can dive into the tour. So, you know, it should be a good uh, golf nerd talk today. Um, well, you uh, you can put me on that list of uh, a long list of golf nerds. That's for sure. I enjoy I enjoy talking about the game. Yeah. Um, so, why don't you uh, give us a, a little bit of a background on your golf career and and how you got into golf and you know what you're doing now? Um, I, I started playing when I was I started swinging a golf club uh, when I was about oh uh, one with a metal head, <laughs> one with a metal head and a metal shaft when I was about eight years old. Uh, my grandparents, uh, maternal grandparents, uh, bought me my first set of golf clubs. And uh, I used to go up to the range with my mom. Um, my mom and dad divorced when I was six, so I was raised by my mom. I saw my dad on the weekends, and my dad would take me out when we would go over to his place. My brother and I would go to his place. My dad would take us out to this little par three golf course in, in the East Bay, Oakland, called Lake Chabot. Um, and we'd play we'd play the the, the little nine hole par three. I don't even know if it's still there anymore, but it was a, it was a great place to learn on. Um, and then other than that, when I, when I got, my dad said, I'm not taking you a big golf course until you can hit your driver 200 yards in the air. And, you know, he didn't want me to slow people down. And, and it's much more liberal now with, with kids on the golf course. But that's kind of the way it was back then. It was, a, it was an older gentleman's game to middle-aged person's game. And there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of, of, uh, of openings for young people in the game unless you went out, unless you remembered a club. And you went out with your parents, who were members at that club, late in the day, three, four, and you stayed away from the older members who were playing, quote, unquote, serious golf out there. So uh, that's how I kind of learned. I was a Publix kid my whole life. Uh, and so I, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, we had a plethora of courses to choose from from a, from a, from a public standpoint that were great. You had Harding. Um, I grew up at uh, San Mateo Muni. I'll always call it San Mateo Muni. It's called Poplar Creek now. But it's on the bay. It, you know, in the, in the springtime during high school matches and, and high school practice, the, they turn the fan on like clockwork at about 1 p.m., and it would blow a steady 20 with, with uh, potentially getting up to 30 miles an hour and uh, every afternoon. I, I've never played a day out at San Mateo Muni where the wind didn't blow. It was always blue. So it, it, it was a dead flat golf course, but it taught you how to control your ball flight. 
it taught you that it taught you how to chip and putt really well because you didn't hit a ton of greens. Greens were small, um, and you were always missing them because of the wind. So you became a good ball striker, and at the same time, you became a good pitcher and putter of the ball as well because putting on bumpy polana, you're going to go one way or the other. You're either going to get scared to death of it, or it's going to turn you into a beastly good putter. Um, and then the other course that I grew up on that I give a lot of credit to was Crystal Springs. Again, very different than Muni. It was up in the hills in Burlingame, up on top by 280, the big freeway that runs north and south in, in San Francisco, um, from San Francisco to San Jose. And it was cut, literally cut into the side of a mountain. And I can count three flat lies on the entire golf course. Three, that's all you had. The ball was above your feet, below your feet, a combination of one or the other. The whole way around, you never had a flat lie, and the wind blew 20 every day. So you learned how to play very feel-oriented golf. You learned how to hit all the shots under all kinds of conditions. Um, and I think that's one of, the, one of the ways my creativity with my ball striking came about is playing those two golf courses. Um, it also, it also re- I also realized that when to score on those two golf courses, you had to play good golf. I mean, you're playing with, with straight bolladas um, back in those days, and you had to have all the shots. You had to be able to hit a four iron from 150 yards into a 25 mile an hour wind and just bump it up there. Um, you had to learn how to chip with a four and five iron with those big pitched greens from back to front. Uh, you know, at Crystal Springs in Muni, where your your those bumpy planters, you'd take a four iron and maybe you were a yard or two off the green and you just you'd literally hit it like a putter, but it was a four iron. You'd chip with it up those greens because when the greens were wet, you'd be if you didn't learn how to take spin off the ball, you'd rip that ball back off the green into the wind on that soft planter. So I learned a, a lot of different shots around there. And then when I got a little older, uh, the guys I met some uh, one of my best friends dad joined Cal Club and uh, I got introduced to the California Golf Club at about 14 or 15 years old and I, I'd go up with them once a month or so in high school and I'd play with them up there so those were my three main places that I played and I, I played Harding every once in a while and I played Palo Alto Muni every once in a while we had high school matches at Green Hills and Menlo Country Club and all those places around there and it was a great variety great variety of golf courses to learn on to grow up on but the one theme was bumpy three o'clock poana when you played high school matches. So you had to turn yourself into a fearlessly good putter. Um, and I, and then that's what I think the Bay area the most for in my, my golf game coming up was that if you can put on bumpy three o'clock poana, you can put on anything. You know, it's interesting. People complain, you know, when the tour goes to, to the West coast and, but it seems like the really great putters separate themselves when they get on that Poe, like you see Snedeker, you know, plays great yeah. on the West coast. Spieth has always putted well out there and, you know, one of the, one, the pebble beach, you know, putting beautifully. So do you think uh Poe kind of, uh, se- it, you know, there's a lot of, you know, rumblings about it, but do you think it's something that separates really great putters from, like, a mental side of things, mostly? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's mainly mental. There's some technique, I think, that guys can use, but I think it's I, – I, I agree with you, Andy. I think it's mainly mental. Guys see the ball bouncing all over the place, and they're like, how am I supposed to make, make a putt on this stuff? And um, I, I think I had such a mental advantage over people on the West Coast, at least I always looked at it, when I got to the green. T to green, I wasn't the 
I wasn't going to dominate anybody by any stretch of the imagination, T to green. I was a, I had, I was a four on the floor guy. I didn't have a fifth gear or a sixth gear like a lot of the guys do today. I had to wedge it. I had to hit good mid irons to short irons. Um, I, I didn't have that that kind of game, so I had to learn how to do it more tactically. And I had to putt well. I had to wedge it well, and I had to putt well. And I, I thought I felt like I did those things fairly well. And especially on the West Coast where my brain would just flip a switch and go, and I, I literally think, I own these guys. I own these guys on the West Coast. I would think like that. And you have to think like that, I think, to a certain extent. And it was just the reverse when I get to Florida, and I putt against those guys who grew up in Florida. I'm like, Jesus, how do you putt these damn Bermuda greens, man? I have no idea what the ball's going to do. And for the first couple of years on tour, on the web tour, I'd, I'd get out there and I'd want to get to the southeast. I'd just pull my hair out because I didn't understand grain all that much because we didn't play on a lot of it in California. Unless you went to the Central Valley around Fresno area, there was some Bermuda greens down there. But I didn't play on them hardly at all. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, uh, it, I can understand why guys from Florida would come out to the West Coast and they'd pitch a fit, and then us West Coasters would go to Florida and we'd pitch, we'd pitch a fit out there. Uh, because we just couldn't, a lot of us couldn't, had a hard time with the grain. Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it, I, I grew up playing bent greens, and, but I, I would go to Florida a lot, so, you know, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable on Bermuda, but uh, when I lived out in L.A. and put it on Poe, it, I mean, it's a whole different experience, because I was playing a lot of late afternoon rounds <laughs> at Rancho Park, which is, you know, Muni yeah, in, in L.A., and, sure. and like, you know, th- those are just bumpy greens. Um, and you know, that bumpy Poe is, is a different beast. Um, I'm curious, you, t- you touched on it a little bit when you were talking about the Baladas and it's been in the news a ton. Um, being somebody that's kind of lived through the, you know, technology era and played at a high level through it, you know, you've played in the late nineties and, you know, uh, how is technology really, what do you think has it changed it? How has it changed the game the most in, in the last 20 years or so? Oh, the ball. I mean, it's I, I, the ball, not even close. Um, it's definitely the ball. And the combination of the driver, for sure. I mean, someone would say, well, you can't have one without the other. Uh, and, and really, you can't. The driver's changed and, and the ball's changed. Those are the two biggest changes in the game. Uh, and then a close third, potentially, is our hybrids mm-hmm. after that. Um, iron technology at the professional level, blades are blades. You know, a blade is a blade is a blade is a blade. It doesn't matter what blade you pick. You just got to like the look at it. Um, they're all going to do the same thing as far as blades are concerned. Um, but uh, the ball, for sure. I'll never forget when I first got a box of the, pro, of the, of the original Pro V1s from Titleist. I, was, I, was, I just turned professional uh, in 19, late 1998. I was out at Stanford, and I was, and I was down there just playing. And I decided I had my I had my uh, my regular professional 90s that I was very happy with. That was an excellent wound ball. Yep. And um, one of my favorite balls of all time, actually. Uh, even to this day, it's still one of my favorite balls of all time. And then I had this box of these Pro V1s. Um, the ones with the, I, I, the, the they ones? Were, and they were they were testing. They weren't even they weren't even coming out yet, but. It was either ninety. I think it might have been ninety nine. Actually, I don't think it was ninety eight. I think it was it was it was early in the spring in ninety nine, and it was it was set to come out. You know, I think in two thousand. But they had for some reason I had uh, 
some of these balls. And now I'm losing track of time. It was 99, 2000, somewhere in there. I can't remember. But I was on the Canadian tour. I totally remember. And I'm playing with these balls, and I'm and I'm and I'm I'm um, uh, I'm comparing them side by side. And I get to the second hole at Stanford, and I decide, all right, I'm going to try these things. And I'm and I'm I'm very reluctant. I'll, I'm a I'm a serial tinker. I'll tinker with anything. But it takes a lot for me to put it in my bag. A lot. I mean, it's got to be remarkably better for me to to switch anything out. If I know I'm comfortable with something and I like something. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll, I, I took it out on the second hole, on the second shot. I, I ripped the drive around the corner, kind of played a, like a, a, a hard draw, and I had nine iron in. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, let me, I'll drop, I'll hit my... I'll hit my, my regular ball, and then I'll hit the Pro V1. So I hit my regular Pro Professional 90, and I hit this beautiful 9-iron from the middle of my stance, and I kind of flighted it really gorgeous, and it, and it, and it, and it went like, like a 4-iron or a 5-iron would go today. I mean, just this gorgeous little flighted 9-iron in there, about 12, 15 feet. I remember the shot like it was yesterday. And then I dropped the Pro V1, and I hit it, and the thing went freaking straight in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like... Uh, that's not a window I'm familiar with. And it went about five yards further. So I'm about a half a club longer. And I was about, I'd say 25, 30 feet behind the pin. And so the rest of the nine holes, I was just trying to figure out how far this ball was going to go and what it did. And I wasn't comfortable with it. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't end up playing it on the Canadian tour. I, we didn't get them until I think late 2000, but I, but I remember testing and I'm like, man, I, I just, I didn't like the original Pro V1 because I felt like I didn't have the same control. And then I'm down at Q school playing with Cameron Beckman in a practice round at the 2000 Q school in La Quinta. And we're at the Nicholas private course and Cameron can, can hit it. He can create some speed. And I hit a drive off one hole. I can't remember which hole it was on the Nicholas court, Nicholas uh, private. And I popped it out there pretty good. And then he gets up there with that new Pro V1. Uh, and pops it, and he's 25 by me. Now I'm usually I was shorter than Cameron normally back then, probably by but not by 25 yards. And I'm like, wow. And he was consistently 20 to 25 yards past me all day long. And I'm sitting here going, man, this is this this is this might be a game changer here. Well, I end up playing with my regular professional 90. When there was a few guys, more than a few guys, I believe, that would switch to the Pro V1 that week, and I ended up missing my card by a shot uh, in that Q school, and, and was and had to go to the web tour, which was a blessing in disguise, quite honestly. But but that's when I knew that things were going were about to, to change. When I saw a guy hit it 25, you know, 20, 25, 30 by me at times, when I'm sitting there going, oh man, you know, I'm roasting these, and I'm not even coming close to him so uh it, it was an eye-opener for sure and that's that's where the ball changed but then again it then it changed again in 2003 and the funny thing is when the x came out that's the that in my opinion is the ball that changed the ball and when the x came out and ernie set records at kapalua with when, when the wind didn't blow that year and shot 30 or 31 or something crazy like that for four rounds and that's when I knew, and I was on tour. I was a rookie on tour that year, and I'm thinking, I'm going, oh my god, what is going on here? Um, and so, uh, when I do my research for certain tournaments, the Masters is one of those tournaments. 
I don't take records before 2003. I don't even bother looking at it. If you want to talk about history and, and get the warm and fuzzies with history, that's fine. But I don't bother looking at any scoring or this or that or anything at Augusta prior to 2003 because the ball was well, the ball was changed. There's a reason six lefties have won at Augusta since the, since the Pro V1X came out, since mm-hmm. Titleist Pro V1X came out, because they could hit bomb cuts with it. Yeah. And you could control a bomb cut. You can control a, a, a knuckle cut. And you could hit that shot with that ball, whereas it's harder to control a hard draw with that ball. So it gave the lefties, that ball gave lefties a, a, a decent advantage, like Bubba, like Weir. Back in 2003, now Weir didn't win it with his ball striking. He wanted an 0-3 with his putting. But nonetheless, he, I bet you he felt more confident standing on holes like 10 and 13 and 14 and 2 when you really got to slide a hard one around the corner to give yourself an opportunity um, to, to get to certain holes and, to, and, to, have, and to, have, to, to, to have the maximum amount of distance and get yourself out there with a cut. Whereas before, the ball would spin a little bit more and you, couldn't, you didn't get the distance, whereas the guys who could turn one down with a spinnier ball took just enough spin off of it but could still control it. Yeah, and now the game now now the game shifted right then and there in '03. So that's where I think it really changed. And then drivers have slowly caught up with the ball, but the ball, I mean, the ball's been ahead of the game for for you know the better part of 13, 14 years now. So and then that same regard is is do you think that's why the majority of the great players on tour now are the right handers are hitting cuts like you see Dustin Johnson? What's happened to his game since he's moved from? a right-to-left ball fight to a left-to-right? No question. No question. You, you have more control over the balls these days. Uh, it, it's really hard. I don't care. It, unless you're going to go to a whippier shaft or a little more loft and create a little more spin, it's, it's really difficult to control when you're creating speeds that those guys are creating. For me, it's not that big a deal. I'm 161 to 163 ball speed. You know, which is the low end on the PGA Tour. It's not even middle of the road anymore. I think 165 to 166 is. And so, and you know, I'm not playing and I don't have my golf muscles and I'm missing bones in my hand. But still, I'm, uh, you know, 161 to 163 is kind of low end for PGA Tour. So I can control the draw a little bit because I'm not creating the speed. But those guys, oh, my gosh, if those guys want to try to play a hard draw, um, it can get out of control or, or it can get blocked in a heartbeat with no spin and not come around. Mm-hmm. I remember Rory McIlroy, when he switched to Nike equipment, had that problem. I was looking at his numbers when he first went to Nike. I was at Golf Channel doing something. We were talking about, I think we were talking about either Abu Dhabi when he made his, his debut, or I, I believe it was Abu Dhabi. And I'm looking, I'm like, God, his draw is not drawing. Now, he had something technical going on in his golf swing that wasn't good at the time. He had some bad footwork going. Uh, from what I remember looking at the video. But the one thing that I noticed was I, that, that didn't lie is I'm looking at, at, at TrackMan data or radar data, and I'm looking, I'm going, he was spinning his, his Titleist ball and his Titleist driver at 2,700 RPMs the year before in 2012. He goes to Nike, and now he's spinning it at 21. That's a 600 RPMs is a huge difference, and that's why his, you know, and he liked to play that tight little draw out there. And that draw wasn't drawing. Yep. Um, so that's something that he had to get used to, and he did, and he won, and he won two majors. So, um, but, but that's the kind of thing that can happen. Uh, and I think that that's why a lot of the guys who are hitting, who hit 
who, who have gone to the cut like Dustin Johnson, and, and you can see what kind of a uh, of a driver has turned Dustin Johnson into going to that cut. So I've got a kind of a theory, and you know everybody. So Patrick Reed is you know obviously a world class player, but he's struggled in majors, and you know I always contend that it's because he hits that hard draw, and with the major championship setups, it, it, everything gets ratcheted up a little, and that draws it's tougher to hold greens, it's tougher to hit to tuck pin pins especially when the greens are firm do you think that um you know patrick reed is a player that you know kind of fits that right to left uh mold that you know might not be a perfect fit for a a tough setup um yes and no i i think that i think that just in general he tends to struggle with his ball striking Mm -hmm. um and and it more happens to do with like you said it is a right to left ball flight for sure, but it's more about how he hits that right-to-left ball flight than the actual right-to-left ball flight. He's very handsy. He's got a lot of toe drop in the top of his backswing with his, with his golf club, which means that when you look at his swing through impact, he's got to exit up, which I call exit up, which means the arms have to cross over really quick, mm-hmm. and he's got to get that hard release, which means the club face isn't square very long in the hitting zone, that one foot behind the one foot in front of the ball. So when his timing's off, it can go everywhere. He can hit snaps. He can hit blocks. And so I think if he, if he gets the club face square at the top and he doesn't have so much toe droop, um, which, you know, can say, and, and, you know, he's, he's cuffed at the top with his left hand. And whenever you get cuffed at the top with your left hand versus a flat left wrist, you're going to have to, you're going to have to make that extra move on the way down to square, keep the club, to square the club face up. I know it because that's exactly what I did in college. And I had to change it. And it took me three to four years between the Canadian Tour and the Web Tour and then on to the PGA Tour to change it. it was, it's very hard. It was very hard for me to, to change that. I had to change it slowly and incrementally over time. And, and it had to evolve rather than just blow it up and do a wholesale change. Um, it, 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 was, it was very difficult for me. It, and he might not want to change it. He might figure out a way to control it. But... Uh, I think that that's one of the reasons why he gets he's inconsistent with his ball striking for sure. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's interesting. So, I you know a lot of uh, I I had Michael Clayton on the podcast and he he talked a lot about technology and I'm I'm curious. Do you feel like that technology has kind of di- diminished the skill of the game and uh, you know you have great players aren't as great as they would be the difference between a great player and a, and a average tour pro is closer because of, is that, is that what's leading this parody in the game we see now? Um, I think so. Uh, you know, it, that's a hard one to answer. I, I still think there's a great amount of skill. I think what Dustin Johnson does with the driver is an incredible amount of skill. There's a cre- incredible amount of skill involved, not only physical skill, uh, tech, but technical skill as well involved with what he does with the driver. But there's no doubt, and I'd be lying if I didn't if I didn't say that that the technological advances in golf over the last 10 to 15 years have absolutely helped these guys in all facets, from TrackMan to this new Quad Foresight that's now out. These launch monitors who are giving these guys instant data on their club and their club head speed and their launch angles and their attack angles and everything. 
I mean, they can diagnose what's going on from swing to swing to swing, and they, they can change from swing to swing to swing. Versus back in the day, you might have to go through half a bucket before you figure out what's going wrong. You can get it. You can figure out what's going wrong in one golf swing these days. So that has that has a play in it. But there's definitely technology overall has helped these guys. And yes, I think it has created some parity in the game. There's no doubt. And I don't mind parity. That's the, another question. Do you do you like parity or do you like some guy dominating? You like that that Tiger Woods era dominance? Um, and quite honestly, uh, I kind of like the parity. Mm-hmm. I, I I like I like knowing. Uh, or not knowing who's going to win every week. Yeah. With Tiger in the field, it was one to three. <laughs> you know, he was a one to three, one to four favorite every every week, or even better, or even better than odds than that, or five, you know, seven to five, or whatever you want to call it. He was he was uber dominant. It was ridiculous what he did. But but I like it now. Where you we're going into Augusta, and no one's got a clue because you can point to anything in these guys' games. And go, okay, he's got a hole here, he's got a hole here, he's got a tiny hole here in his game for this place. And you just like, you have no idea that this is one of the most wide open masters, in my opinion, in, in years, based on all kinds of different factors. But technology um, has definitely given these guys, has brought everybody closer together. Because now, out there, you're absolutely splitting hairs. Absolutely splitting hairs. I, I've, I've turned into a fairly keen cyclist over the last four or five years, and it's almost like what the guys do in the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia and the, and the big world tour teams is that when they go into testing and they, they're fine-tuning their bodies and their, and their bikes, I mean, it is, they're looking for absolute marginal gains. I mean, 1%, 2% here to, to be you know, a tenth of a second faster than the next guy. And that makes all the difference in the world when you're riding a bike at 30 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, the same thing goes in the golf world. It's the same exact thing in the golf world. These guys are looking for just marginal gains at the highest level, and they're trying to find that through this equipment or this workout routine or I ate that for dinner and that didn't sit well with me and I had a tough round, so I'm going to get that out of my diet. Literally, I think that that's what a lot of guys do. And... Um, and, it, and it's all to, to fine-tune the athlete. And that's the way all sports have gone to over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, evidenced by the Golden State Warriors with all the stuff that they do off the basketball court, the guys do to keep their bodies in shape and so on and so forth, doing hyper, hyperbaric chambers and uh, the cryotherapy and all that stuff for their body. It's, 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 uh, it's all good stuff, but it's all leading to more parity in the game, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it's kind of golf has shifted from an NBA-like game where NBA is so dominated by superstars like you mentioned the Warriors and their their super team you've got LeBron like if you don't have a if you don't have one of the five best players in the league you don't really have a shot at the title and now in golf has shifted from you know that superstar driven game with Tiger and VJ and Ernie um, and David Duvall in his heyday but now it's much more like the NFL where week in week out anybody can win you know you're never surprised when a a three and no, you got a hundred and yeah, you got 144 guys in the field week in and week out, 156 during the summertime, and or starting up here pretty quick. And honestly, 120 to 130 of them have a chance to win, legitimately, legitimately. 120 to 130 guys have have a legitimate chance to win. Mm-hmm. You know, on any given week, if they do, if one guy does a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, he can win the golf tournament. And and it's not and it's not that much. It's very little that that separates the uh, the guy who misses the cut to the guy who wins. 
mm-hmm. quite honestly. It's just, you know, it, it's a putt here, a putt there, or getting hot at the right time on a Saturday, or, um, you know, it's it simple break. as a warm-up on the range, moving your ball position, or this or that. It's just splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having having played in uh, in three Masters, uh, you know, kind of tell us uh, a little bit about, you know, playing Augusta, maybe something that, that gets kind of uh, shooed under the rug and doesn't get talked about a lot that's, you know, kind of important to, for success out there. Oh, important for success? Uh, oh, oh, you mean from, from a play standpoint uh-huh. uh, around that place? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, you know, over the years, we've talked so much about it on Golf Channel. I, I, I think we've, we've talked about everything. Yeah. Um, we, we've talked it to death. Uh, and there's really nothing that I can think of that gets shooed under the rug, so to speak, as far as what you need to do on that golf course, as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. Um, but if I had to pick one, since the changes, the final changes in 06, when they added all the distance and planted the trees, you really have to drive your ball now. Whereas it was truly a second-shot golf course, you know, back in the day when Tiger won by 12 and um, Faldo came back and beat uh, – uh, Norman in 96 and so on and all the way back to well, well before that into the seventies and, and eighties and even sixties, you know, you could, you could spray it here, spray it there and create angles for yourself to certain hole locations. Now those angles have been chopped in some cases, chopped in half, especially 11 and 17 and maybe even 15. Um, because of the tree plantings, you can't create the, the same angles that those guys used to create. So, Putting your being able to drive the ball in a certain section of the fairway and still create that angle, even though the angle might be not as acute, a little more obtuse, it's it's important to still drive your ball. It's important to drive your ball, and I don't think that's talked about because, quite honestly, uh, when you look at the statistics uh, of the Masters winners over the last uh, probably since, uh, like I said, since '03, which is where I like to go back to. Uh, you, you have to hit greens. You have to hit. You have to hit at least fifty greens. Mm-hmm. That's that's that is the that is the gold standard number to win to win the Masters. You have to hit fifty greens. Very few people in that span since '03 have hit less than fifty greens and won the Masters. The highest is is uh, is Adam Scott in 2013, who hit 55 greens. The lowest was Mike Weir, who hit 38. And won the Masters, which is amazing to me that he hit 38 greens and won the Masters in 03 because he putted and chipped his rear end off. But but you you gotta hit 50 greens to have it to have a chance, you, uh, or very close to 50 greens. Do you know offhand how many uh, Spieth hit last year? Uh, I want to say last year I'm uh, I didn't know how many Spieth hit. I looked at the winners just recently, yeah. but when he won, I believe he hit 54. Cause I, you know, in 15, I, he hit 54. I feel like that's something. But Danny that, Willett. Yeah. Yeah, Danny Willett only hit. Danny Willett, I think, hit 48 or 49 last year and ended up winning. But it was a tough year. It was a windy. It was firm. Mm-hmm. It was fast. Yep. Um, it, it was it was playing it was playing difficult last year. A much more difficult than it had the year prior when it was a little softer. Um, and you could get it more pins. Yep. So. Uh, you know, a lot of it has to deal with the weather. Like Zach Johnson didn't hit 50 greens in 07. I played that year, and it was a nightmare mm-hmm. um, that year. 
It's uh, it's inter- with the weather forecast. It looks like it's going to be soft. I I always say to people the, you know, the number one thing that you can do to defend any golf course against these guys is is it play firm and fast. And it's always a shame when yes. you, they they the course kind of you know it, it puts such a damper on on who's playing the best when it when a course plays softer because you know all of a sudden your misses aren't exaggerated. So with with the course conditions in mind, you know who are who are uh, some guys you like next week? Well, I'll tell you what. With the course conditions in mind, um, I like Rory McIlroy. All four of his majors were won on soft golf courses. Mm-hmm. Can't deny that. Even 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 a fourteen at uh, Hoylake was a softer, less windy, less bouncy Hoylake than we saw in '06, which when it was completely brown. And running, I mean, you could putt the ball from 150 yards onto the green. Um, and I, I think that uh, uh, when the golf course is soft, as we've seen before with Rory, uh, his chest gets a little bit more puffed out. Because when the ball, when any big hitter, when the ball just hits and sticks, that makes the fairways that much wider, which means they can swing that much harder which means they're going to be that much farther ahead of the next guy and hitting that much less club into the green. Now, they can turn the sub airs on on the greens, but you can't turn the – they don't have sub airs in the fairways. So, so the greens can get fairly firm, but the fairways can be soft. And I, and I quite honestly, I think that plays into the longer hitter's hand. I mean, most golf courses these days now, do now anyway, but I think that from a, from a, from a standpoint of – I, I, that, of the longer of the guys who drive it really well and 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 in total driving, Rom, um, who's obviously playing fantastic and is one of the best drivers of the golf ball on the planet. Rom, DJ, Rory. Uh, I think Rom's going to surprise people next week. I know Augusta's uh, not really kind to first timers, mm-hmm. but I think Rom's going to surprise people next week, and I wouldn't doubt it if he's in the top five going into Sunday on the back nine with a chance. Um, I think Rory's if, – if Rory can putt, uh, if the putter shows up, Rory's going to be there. I think Dustin's going to be there. The weird thing about Dustin is is that the last number one to win the Masters was 0-2, Tiger. He was the last number one to win the Masters. He was number two going into the Masters in 05 when he beat Chris DeMarco in the playoff. BJ was actually number one going into the Masters that year. Mm-hmm. So history's going a little against – Dustin Johnson, and the average world rank who's won the Masters the last, uh, say, since 2010, is 12. That's the average world rank. And who's sitting at number 12 right now? Patrick Reed. Yeah. Funny enough. <laughs> and and right, at thir- right around there, 13, is, is Justin Rose, who's, who's kind of starting to turn into a little bit of a chic pick uh, for next week. And, again, with Justin, it's the putter. The, if the putter shows up, Justin's always got a chance at Augusta National. He's got a very good record there. Um as far as a sleeper pick for me, Paul, uh, Paul Casey, not a sleeper pick. I think Paul, his game's starting to round into form, get better. He loves that place. Uh, he's got perfect ball flight. Again, a guy who bombs it. He can hit it both directions, right to left, left to right. Uh, I think Paul's going to be there, too. And, and he finished fourth last year, and he's, had, he's also had a, a tremendous record at Augusta National. But the sleeper pick, I think, for me, is Mark Leishman. Yeah. Um, kind of my dark horse. Obviously won Bay Hill a couple weeks ago. Uh, has a T4. He's only played in four Masters, missed three of four cuts, but the T4 was in 13. 
He knows how to play the place, and he's in good form right now, and maybe he can recapture some of those vibes from uh, from 2013 and, and play well again next week. But I, I like him as a sleeper pick. Aussies tend to play well at Augusta too, and uh, could you yes, know. They, yes, they do. So you know, the, usually the you know the firm and fast greens they have a big advantage coming from the sand belt. Um, yeah, I I, I like uh, Leishman's chance. I just did my sleepers. I had uh, I had Fleetwood on there, who's you know he's gone from a hundredth and to thirty third in the world rankings. He's another rookie though. That's a, it's interesting. Yeah. I think I think the softer the softer conditions will help rookies. Obviously, Ron, oh, absolutely. Ron, no, no doubt. Yeah. Um, I kind of like... something that, that's why Rom. That's why I like Rom Andy so much next week because I do believe the softer conditions are going to take the are going to take the bounce away, mm-hmm. and that's going to take away that's going to take away the advantage the veterans have who've seen that place under numerous conditions. They've seen it fiery. They've seen it slow. And when 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 you haven't when you've seen the ball bounce, I played three years. One year was fairly soft. I think it was '06 when Mickelson won. That was my rookie year there, and I finished 14th. I played, I played very well. Um, the next year, it was blowing 20 every day. It was like the, the wind chill factor was like 38. It was ridiculous, and the golf course was full of fire. I mean, hard and fast, and it absolutely ruined me And because I, I wasn't used to that. And 08 was kind of similar. It was kind of halfway in between. But when you haven't seen that golf course with fire in it, with that bounce, I mean, when you see a ball bound in certain spots, that that can be intimidating for certain guys when you think you've hit a perfect drive in a certain area and it's off into the pine straw and you're having to create something crazy around a pine tree and out of the out of the pine straw. Um, that can get to that can get to a rookie, there's no doubt. You know, I've got a kind of a theory on why everybody loves. Obviously, it's a huge advantage playing there every year, where the fan gets familiar. But I think Augusta does such a great job of, you know, the course constantly asks players to to hit the heroic shot, and when you pull it off, you've got you know unbelievable looks at birdie and eagle. Um, but when you don't, it's you know all of a sudden turns into a tough par or bogey. Um, would you say that you know that it it compared to most courses that the tour stops at has that more of a risk reward feel um, throughout the round than everywhere else at Augusta national versus the rest of the golf Uh versus the rest of the golf courses. Yeah. Um, I would say, I would say so. Yeah. I would say Augusta nationals uh, prime for that. That, I mean, I think that's, that's, I think that's a hallmark of a lot of McKenzie golf courses in general, Mm -hmm. quite honestly. I think he was ahead of his time in that, in that regard. Um, I think that, uh, um, McKenzie loved from what I, you know, playing, growing up playing in San Jose state, we got to play Paso Tiempo every, every Monday for four years I did. So I got to know McKenzie very well in that regard, mm-hmm. uh, at Paso Tiempo and, and kind of how he, what his philosophy was. And you might have a pin that's located in one section of the green and you're aiming 30 feet right of, or left of a pin and using that slope to bring it in. Um, I think that that kind of stuff is awesome. That, that's why McKenzie's my favorite architect, because I, he just used, he used the land so well, and used, you had to use your imagination and understand the entire golf course and understand you know, uh, where the ball could feed from. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to attack every flagstick. You could, 
you could use the, the banking and you could use different slopes to, to get the ball, to gather the ball where you want. And that's one of the beauties of Augusta National um, in, in its risk-reward. Sometimes you don't want it. Very rarely you want to go right at a pin at Augusta National. Very rarely. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're constantly playing away from pins, even with wedges, um, to, to use slopes to, to kind of take the fire out of the, out of the, out of the bounce and the, and the ball and let the ball gather. And sometimes 20 feet is a phenomenal shot because if you go at that pin where 20 feet right or left is a phenomenal shot, you go out that pin and you don't pull it off like you said, I mean, you can make a double, you can make a double bogey and not have a penalty shot very easily. Mm-hmm. So uh, just by messing around, trying to get cute with a pitch shot. So um, it's very important to take your medicine, and that's another thing where rookies tend to struggle with, especially in today's, in today's day and age where everything is go, 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 right at pins, right at the pin, right at the pin, right at the pin, fire and go. Uh, Augusta National's a throwback, and you, can't, you really can't do that there. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's interesting. I, I call you know, what a lot of the tour golf is, is is kind of robot golf, where it's just hit it far and straight and then hit it right at the flag. And what, we're, what we've yeah. seen this year is, you know, two of the most exciting tournaments have been like the match play where you're playing at Austin Country Club, which is, you know, a shorter setup with, you know, a lot of risk reward. But, you know, that golf course was so firm and fast that it played, you know, so much differently than the usual one. And then they had the WGC Mexico, which, you know, was was mm-hmm. very short, um, but also very firm and fast. Like, do you think that um, the tour needs to look at, at going to more unique and different setups? Because, you know, the, the tour schedule is kind of a slog of the same type of golf course uh, week in, week out. Well, in, in a lot of instances, honestly, in a lot of instances, the tour doesn't have, they don't have that reach. Mm-hmm. I'd love to say yes, they need to, but the, the economics of it and the business side of it tell me, you know, we've got contracts with certain golf courses uh, and certain places for X amount of years, and we're not going anywhere. Um, so in that regard, it's up to the tour officials, in my opinion, to set the golf course up. And Slugger and his crew and, and uh, Mark Russell and his crew, when they're out there, those guys uh, and, the, and all the guys who do setups, one guy sets up the front nine, usually one guy sets up the back nine. Um, and it's up to, it's up to our tour, tour officials at, at the regular tour stops to really make it interesting for the players. And they can only do so much. You can, hey, listen, there's certain golf courses out there where you can put lipstick on a pig, but, <laughs> but it's still a pig. Yep. You know? So, so, I mean, they can do whatever they want, but they can't dress, you know, you can, you, you can dress it up only so much. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, Harbor Town, you can put in the same vein. Harbor Town's always exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it, Harbor Town's awesome um, for that same reason. Same reason WGC Mexico and the WGC Del Match Play were, were, were uh, amazing. Short, tight, um, different looks off of tees, put a little wind in there. Uh, I, I love those golf courses. Love those golf courses. Lots of options off the of tees, um, and you gotta you gotta move the ball both directions. You gotta hit it high, hit it low. Uh, yeah, I would be a huge fan if every week we got to play a golf course like that. It's just unfortunately, it's it's not the ca- it's just not the case, just due to um, a lot of different factors. Yeah, I mean, it's also not easy to get a golf course if it's a private club to give up the golf course for two weeks. You know. It's, uh, well, it's that, you know, we, we played a decent amount of TPCs, too. Um, and quite honestly, the TPCs, because we own them, 
they don't have a site fee attached to them. So mm-hmm. that's good business for the tour. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they don't, you don't have to pay a site fee at the TPCs. And, uh, you most, have to pay a site fee at other golf courses. Most TPCs were built from 1980 through uh, 2005, you know, and, and that's not necessarily the, uh, the era of when no. great golf was being built. So it's, uh, no. it, it was, little, that's well, I'd call that the dark, dark ages. There are maybe 50s, 60s, 70s in certain areas too. Mm-hmm. And the, the, those are little, the dark ages in golf course architecture there too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, it seems like, you know, from Twitter and everything, you're pretty interested in architecture. Is it, you know, is it something that you got into after your career or were you really into it from early on because you got to, you know, you got exposed to some great architecture out in uh, California as a young kid? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's the form. I think it's the latter. I think I just, I, you know, I, I think to a certain extent as a golfer, this is going to sound really, really flowery and, and uh, kind of corny, but I, I think that we're artists as golfers. That's how I look at golfers. I don't look, I mean, some guys might be more tacticians or, or mechanics as I like to call them and guys who, you know, work on positions and all this, but quite honestly, I think in, in regards that the, the best players have always been artists and golf courses are our canvas. Um, and I grew up and I have a good reason to think like that. My mom is it by trade is an artist. Um, she has a master's from San Jose state in graphic design. And when I was a kid growing up, our coffee table books were Architectural Digest, Monet, Manet, Degas, Rembrandt, all the greats uh, of, of art, especially Impressionist work. And so I, had a, I, I, I have, I have a, a very fond memory of art. I have a very healthy respect for art um, and, uh, because of my mom. And so for me the golf course and golf course architecture was just another extension of, of artwork because much like artwork, um, hanging on a wall in a gallery, you can, you can have one person walk up to a Degas and go, that is the most gorgeous looking thing I've ever seen in the world. And then you could go over to a Monet sitting right next to this Degas and you can go, and another person will go, this is the most gorgeous thing that I've ever seen. And they'd both be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I look at golf course architecture. Are there some dogs out there? Yeah, there's, there might be some stuff done by the greats that I don't like, but very few things, much like the greats in golf course architecture when you're talking about Rayner, C.B. McDonald, um, Tillinghast, McKenzie, uh, Ross. Um, you know, the greats of the golden age, the, you know, the, the guys who, who were the greatest of all time um, at what they did and the pioneers. Uh, I think that uh, very few works from those guys were dogs. There are some you can go, wow, this is a, this is a Ross or this is a McKenzie. Like some people say that about Claremont Country Club up in the East Bay Hills. Wow, this is a McKenzie. It's a cute little 6,000-yard golf course in the, in, the, in the East Bay Hills that no one knows about that's a McKenzie. Mm-hmm. Same with Green Hills Country Club right up the road from my front door where I grew up in San Mateo, California, in San Bruno or Milbury. It's a, it's a McKenzie, and, it, and no one hardly knows that it's there. But it's a cute little, I don't know, 6,200-yard golf course um, that's a McKenzie um, that people either love or hate. So uh, I just, I've always looked at golf course architecture from the perspective of it being art. I've never tried to assign values, even though I probably have in the past, 
I've never tried to assign, I've never purposely tried to assign values to, to rate a golf course on certain things. I think if I had to, the one thing would be um, shot values. I mean, what are the shot values like? Do you, do you play a lot of different clubs? Do you have to use a lot of different clubs off the tees? Do you, do you, do you go through your whole bag throughout the day? Um, how much strategy? I'm a huge fan of, of, of strategic golf. I'm not a big fan of just brunt force U.S. Open style golf courses, quite honestly. I like, I like being able to create angles. So I love, that's why I'm a huge McKenzie fan. I love being able to, you know, why are you driving it way over here when the middle of the fairway is here? Well, the pin's on the right today, and that's how you get to that pin. Mm-hmm. You've got to be way over here, and you might have a longer shot, but I've got a better angle than you sitting on the right, even though you're a club or two shorter than I am into the green. So, so that's the kind of stuff that I love um, uh, about, about strategic golf courses and the old school golf courses. And, and they'll, they'll always be art to me. And it's in the eye of the beholder, quite honestly. You might not like dope. You might, uh, a certain dope stuff. You might not like certain Crenshaw core stuff or Hans stuff or Kyle Phillips, who's one of my favorite, uh, favorite architects. And the stuff that he's done over the last few years, I think, is, is really good stuff. Um, I think all those guys are, are, are kind of a throwbacks of, mm-hmm. of, of the old school guys uh, only in this modern era. And I'm glad to see that they're kind of taking some of the, some of the things that, that, that all the guys back in the 20s did, and they're kind of trying to relive it on their golf courses just a little bit with their own modern twist. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you with the art thing wholeheartedly. I mean, if you gave all of those architects that you just rattled off the same piece of land, they'd all come back with completely different uh, routings and golf courses, you know, and that's the totally. beauty of it. And they'd all be brilliant, probably. They'd all be brilliant. Yep, and it, and that's like you know why it's completely art. Uh, it's a complete form of art, and you know it it is. There's so many intricacies when you play a great golf course, and you learn stuff over and over every time you play. I think that's one of the ways I I think about golf courses is like, would I want to play here every day? Um, you know, you hit on a lot of great things with shot values. Like, you know, does it, does it make me hit different shots? Do I use all my, my clubs in my bag? Is there a good variety in their par threes? You know, I think there's nothing worse than when you go to a golf course and every par three is between 200 and 220 yards. You know, it's like, oh, you're, God. You, so, yeah. I mean, honestly, I will literally, I don't care. I will literally change tee boxes. Mm-hmm. So if the guys say, oh, we're playing from the back tees, no. I'm going to play pit par three from 150 yards because that pin's a dumb pin from 220. Yeah, and it's you it, know seriously, it's a it's a golf course's job to test all aspects of your game. You know, and and if you're just if a par threes or par three should have variety, they should test your wedge game, they should test your mid iron game, your long iron game. You know, it shouldn't just be a test of how good you can hit a five or a four iron. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm of the mind that a golf course has. I think a good golf course has three things to start with. And this is really my only, I guess, rule, if you would say, if you want to call it a rule. It has to have a great short par three under 150 yards, okay, with trouble all over the place or something that tests your wedge, nine iron, eight iron, okay, but no more than an eight iron from the back tees, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and in some cases, you know, people hit different. If you play the right tees, let's say your, your eight iron only goes 120, play the 120-yard tee box or 110-yard tee box yep. at the same hole, okay? It has to have a great reachable risk-reward par five, all right? 
85 to 525 yards with all kinds of issues all over the place. But you can still hit driver if you want to. I don't like the ones that take driver out of your hand. Um, but yet, if you want to hit driver, you've got to hit a good driver. Uh, uh, but leaves you a bail area, but it's going to be a tough out to, get, to, make, to make a three maybe or a four from that bail area. But if you hit the drive right with your driver, you've got a, you know, a mid-iron to a long iron in your hand as, from the back tees as a, good, as a good player, and you've got a chance to make a three. And usually the green's fairly difficult. And then the last, and le- last but not least is a drivable par four. Mm-hmm. Love the drivable par four. And again, you've got to make it tough. You've got to make, I, I think in all honesty, you, you either got to make the layup tough and make the layup so tough with an iron that – that guys don't want to do it so that they're, that are like, God, I don't want to lay up with a seven iron and, and, and hit a sandwich in. I, why would I do that? Yeah. So you, I mean, I, that's the kind of stuff that, that I love. And then the green's got to be cautiously psychotic, as I like to say, to where it's not goofy, but it tests the player's patience. Yeah, I think the that short par four is is like in full renaissance. It's like the new thing to do, and you know, almost every golf yeah. course has them now. Um, and it, it is just so great. I I love how those holes are ones where you can make a two or you can make a you can make a seven, and it 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 can just unravel so quickly without, like you said about Gusta, without taking a penalty shot. Or in the case, or in the case of number ten at Riviera, you can make a four, or you can make a seven. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, par five in America at three hundred and ten yards. Yeah, I um, you know, the hole I love out at Riviera is seven. I think that that cross bunker that that's such a good little oh. little mid length par four. So I think I think that the the probably the two most brilliant. Well, I'd say there's three brilliant par fours on that golf course, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. I think five's a brilliant par four yep. down the hill. Uh, I think seven, agree with you, and I think eight. I love the idea of, of double fairways and creating angles based on where the pin is located. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, was, I would be, miss, be remiss if I didn't mention George Thomas with those other architects because he's kind of the, the quiet one of the bunch back then that I think did brilliant work that doesn't get as much recognized. And one of my favorite golf courses, I mean, I, I would – um, Riviera is one of my favorites. It's in my top ten of all time, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. That's it's a it's an awesome place. It's a, the the thing I find interesting about that, and you know, diving back a little bit into the PGA Tour, and I've said this on I think probably a couple podcasts, but the I can the last time there the winners there are historically above the age of twenty eight. Um, I think it's been. 13 yes. or 14 years where there's been a younger win- winner than 28. And I think it's so much because of how you have to think, and it becomes so angle-oriented that you have to think your way around the golf course, and it's not robot golf like these other places where it's just hit it, hit it close because there's actual, you know, there's you have to create the angles to make the birdies out there. And I bet you would know much totally. more having played it in, you know, competition. Yeah, you do have to, um, you know, and if it wasn't, honestly, if it wasn't for Willett and Spieth the last two years, that, that was, that average age was around 32. Mm-hmm. And those guys dropped it uh, dramatically, uh, obviously, because they're obviously guys in their early and mid-20s. Oh, I was talking about so, Riviera. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Riv- oh, I thought you were talking about Augusta. I, no. I apologize. Uh, Riviera. Um, so Yeah, no, Riviera is very similar, I think, to a certain extent. Um, 
you know, every year for the for, – I was out there walking the golf course this year with Dustin Johnson, uh, watching him doing live golf. And um, you do. You have to create angles on a lot of the holes out there. Uh, and, and George Thomas set up the greens at angles and angled the greens to where, you know, if you don't get on a certain side of the fairway, it's going to be a little bit more difficult attacking certain hole locations mm-hmm. at that place. And, and yet people consider it to be more of a U.S. Open track. But when you – they didn't have hardly any rough there this year. I mean, hardly any. It was spotty at best. And, and there was some thick parts of the golf course. But most of the golf course was extremely playable off the fairway. And, um, and so you, if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to blow it right on certain holes or left on certain holes, uh, you had an opportunity to do so, uh, and, and create yourself, give yourself proper angles into, into the hole locations. But yeah, I think that, um, I think that that golf course, uh, in and of itself does a, does a fantastic job in, uh, in not only determining champions, but, um, uh, creating really good some of the greatest shot values on the pga tour yeah yeah it's it's that i mean it's one of the most probably the most uh architecturally sound golf course every year in year out uh and you see just such a diverse leaderboard i wrote like last year last year this year was so soft and so much rain that it, it kind of diminished it but the year before you had kj Choi out there bunting drivers around 260 and 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 in the lead on the back nine on Sunday it's you know and then you've got got you got Bubba who ended up winning hitting it you know at some some spots 80 90 yards past him oh yeah I know you you had lots you, you that's the that's the wonderful thing about the golf course you got there's lots of different ways to play you don't have to be a bomber to play that golf course but the way DJ the way DJ played that golf course because it was wet um, the way he played that golf course this year, my goodness. I mean, I'm watching him go up nine, which is uphill, and there's a bunker out there at about 270. and to, I think 270 to cover it or 275 to cover it. And he's playing with Perez and Tringali. And Cameron's not long. He's one of the shorter hitters on tour, relatively short. You know, uh, high 270s, low 280s. Perez is not short. Perez is above average to average, average to above average on, on tour. And DJ, Perez gets up there and bounces it, flies it in the bunker. Because mm-hmm. that plays, uh, that plays traditionally into the, the wind, too. You, you, yeah, at, at times. Yeah, yeah this, today it was, this day it was calm. There was okay. no wind. Um, DJ, and DJ gets in. Tringali bounces it into the bunker. And then DJ gets up there takes one look, one little swipe, and literally flies the bunker by 30 yards uphill, 275 to cover it, and didn't even, I mean, it waved at it on its way by. It was unbelievable. I get up there, and I'm looking at it going, hey, this is not a fair fight. This guy's hitting nine iron or a wedge into number nine at Riviera, and these guys are laying up out of this bunker yeah. with no chance to get to that green. So uh, he, he just took the place apart. He, it was it was. It was it was interesting to watch him play that place and how he, how he worked himself around that golf course. But distance, distance is king, man. That's what he showed me there that day. He had all the shots. There's no doubt. He played some beautiful, soft, touchy type shots in the greens. That uh, which is why I'm picking him. He's my pick to win Augusta. Which is you know I'm going out on a big win there, aren't I? Um, <laughs> but the guy is just playing too good. But he showed me a lot at Riviera of what he could do with his soft touch shots 
from the, the eight iron, nine iron, seven iron type shots that you need those at Augusta national to feed it to certain hole locations. So, um, the guy is just in full control of his game right now. It's fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, the, people don't talk the last two years. I mean, he hasn't made any putts at Augusta and he finished fourth and sixth. So it's not like, yeah. you know, like I, I think if he, if his putting is average, he's on, he's nearly impossible to beat because of just how dominant he is tee to green. Um, and especially like you said, off the tee there is, is so important now and, and nobody drives it better than him. Well, yeah, there's no doubt. And, and, you know, people will say, well, Aaron, what about his cut? You, you, you can't cut it on 13. That's a keyhole for him. You can't cut it on two. That's a keyhole for him. And I said, well, he's got a three with it goes yeah. 280 yards. And if he turns that down, if he turns that down, which he can very easily, he's going to still be hitting iron into those holes after hitting three wood. So I'm not worried about Dustin Johnson on two or 13, which are two key holes that you do need to, when you're his length, you do need to turn it down from right to left. The rest of the holes, if he wants to hit a, an iron off a of 14, he can. If he wants to hit a three wood off a of 14 and turn it down, he can. 15, he can cut it. 17, he can cut it. 18, he has to cut it. One, he has to cut it. Three, he can practically drive the green in the right conditions. Um, the rest of the golf course, he really doesn't have to sit up there and hit a big sling and draw. Quite honestly, he can, you know, nine, he might, he might have to finagle a, a, a straight ball or a slight draw just a little bit. Ten, yeah, you got to sling it. But again, that's a three wood or a two iron down the hill for him or a driving iron of some, cor- some, some kind. Every other hole, he can stand up there and hit a nice little, you know, nice little bleeder from left to right that goes 320. So I, I have no worries about DJ. Yeah. Uh, next week. Other than, other than his putting, that's a good call. Yeah, he hasn't putted well at, at Augusta National traditionally, but. He's got this new putter in the bag, and you know when Spieth's coming out and saying, uh, you know, DJ's the favorite. I don't know why I'm the favorite because there's no reason I should be the favorite based on the way Dustin's playing uh, right now. Um, you know, and I agree with Jordan 100. percent Whether he's trying to take pressure off himself next week or not, he's right on any account <laughs> that Dustin's the favorite next week. Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, he's won three in a row and. Two of them have been WGCs, and and you know Riviera wasn't even close. So you gotta, he is a, he is a dominant force. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm curious. Uh, I want to get into some uh, Twitter questions. We got some good ones here, and um, sure. you've mentioned some uh, some of the courses you grew up playing in in the Bay Area, and you've mentioned a few lesser known places like uh, Green Hills and. But what are you know some of your other favorites in the Bay Area that that everybody might not know about? Wow, um, Lincoln Park. Okay. Uh, it, it's it's not in the greatest of shape. It's a muni up in San Francisco, but it might have one of the best par threes you'll ever play in number seventeen. Not only visually stunning, but just strategically a cool hole sits downhill about two twenty downhill to a very small green wide green um and off in the distance to the left is the golden gate bridge that you can see clear as day it's 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 stunning actually especially on a clear day it's absolutely stunning um and i would i would highly recommend people go play up there um you know you know i'm a big fan of public golf Mm -hmm. go play all the munis go play palo alto muni go play San Jose Muni, go play, um, go play Sunnyvale Muni, 
Go play San Mateo Muni, now called Poplar Creek. Um, Crystal Springs isn't a Muni, but go play Crystal Springs. It's a semi-private golf club up on the hills there. Go play Crystal Springs. They're fun tracks. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them are pretty flat, as flat as pancakes. Uh, but it's just, uh, you know, where I grew up, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just a, it's a, it, they're fun tracks that aren't going to break your bank and you'll have a nice day out there. Quite so, honestly. I got to ask um, you with, with the, yeah. uh, with Sharp Park, it sounds like that project's going to be, you know, headed towards a restoration. Um, you know, what, what, how good, how good could that place be? That place could be the best public golf course, in my opinion, better than Harding Park if it's done right. Dead mm-hmm. serious. It could be better than Harding Park. If you take it back to what McKenzie had originally designed that place to be, it could be better it could be the best it could be the best public golf course, maybe this might be a stretch, but maybe in the state of California, quite honestly. If it's done right, if it's done right, if you if you go back to a to, a true restoration it could potentially be the best municipal golf course in, in, in California. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So, uh, there, there's a lot riding on it. You know, you, I, I'd want a guy who really understood McKenzie. Number one, there's a lot of guys that do, mm-hmm. um, but to do it, and I played sharp, uh, obviously growing up and that's another one that you can add to the list. Although they've, they've really let it go quite honestly. Um, but if, if that comes to fruition, if they do it, it could be pretty magical, actually, that place. Yeah, I, I mean, right, for those of you that don't uh, haven't heard about it, Sharp Parks is a municipal McKenzie design that's right on the, on the waterfront there in, in San Francisco. And, you know, it's been, it's been overgrown. They've been in a big environmental fight for years, and it, it finally looks like they... Uh, the restoration plans are, are going to move forward. Um, so that's something that we'll, uh, we'll have to keep an eye on. I, I want to get out there and, and play it and see it before. And, you know, obviously it give you a good mindset of what, uh, what how it's changed um, over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, so uh, Columbus Pete wants to know uh, what your thoughts are on Pebble Beach being considered uh, overrated. <laughs> Laughable. Absolutely laughable. No chance. No chance. I, you could make an argument that the first and second holes at Pebble Beach are overrated, but no, no there's, 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 strate- there's strategy around every corner at Pebble Beach if you know where to look for it. There's strategy on one through 18. Mm-hmm. Every hole. It's a second shot golf course. There's nothing overrated about Pebble Beach. Not an ounce it's, overrated about Pebble Beach. That's a- And anybody who says that in my opinion, now listen, I, I, I did say that golf is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. And there might be people out there who've played it that went, eh. And that's cool. That's their, that's their opinion. But, you know, for me, there is absolutely zero overrated about Pebble Beach. And if I had one place to play the rest of my life uh, every day, and I, and I could play it every day, it would be Pebble Beach. Without I, a doubt. The, Without a doubt. Not just because I won there. But just because of the variety of holes and the things that you have to do around that place, and that you, you change a pin from 20 feet over here to 20 feet over there, and the whole and the wind switches from this direction to that direction, the golf course plays so different every day. You get a different golf course every day out there. It's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's uh, that's I actually wanted to ask you. You get three places to play the rest of your life. So you got Pebble as one of them. What are the other two? Uh, 
they're they're all uh, they're all in Northern California. They're all within two hour drives. It, it, they're all within a two hour drive. Pebble, Positiempo, and the California Golf Club. It's, it's good. It, I mean, you cut down on any expenses of travel having to get to the only three golf courses. You know? re, re, really, real easy, real, uh-huh. si- real simple. People yeah. are like, no Cypress Point? What? I'm like, Cypress is good. Um, uh, but uh, for my money, it, it, my favorite course on the peninsula is definitely, on the Monterey Peninsula, is, is Pebble Beach. All right. That's a, you know, it's a contrarian view. We, we love contrarian views at the Friday. So, um, no, no, there's no, yo, yeah. Everybody kills me about that. Aaron, what is wrong with you? Why don't you like Cypress point? I like Cypress point. I do. It's just, it's not, it's not, I'm not, I'm going to put it in my top 10 of all time that I've played and I love, but I'm not going to put it in my top five. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, just because you don't want to play it every day doesn't mean it's not a great golf. You know, it's a you, you exactly can, you, it, 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 exactly. This is where eye of the beholder and golf courses being artwork come into play. Mm-hmm. It's for you know if if Rembrandt's not your thing, then you got Monet right over here. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to go wrong in Monterey. You know, you got a Degas over here. Do you want you know Do you want a Monet over here? Give me a, give me a break. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. So I. Uh, Let's get one more here from Holiday Tacos. Wants to know who wins in a NASA today, you or Tiger? Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, well, if, if he can't, uh, it's an easy answer. If he's not, if, if he can't play because of his back, I think I'd get him pretty easily. Yeah. Um, but if he's if he's well practiced. Uh, and I get out there and I practice right now, currently, if we were to go right now, absolutely at this moment in time, I think it would be a close match because my game's not all that great, but I don't think his is either. So you don't think he's he's playing uh, the next week? Um, something tells me he's going to show up. I don't know why. I just have a gut feeling he's going to show up. And, and I, I just think that um, – the place means too much to him. I really do. Um, would I be surprised if he didn't? No, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't because he's got plenty of reasons not to show up, quite honestly. But, but, but I, I really, for whatever reason, I just think he, I think he's going to show up. I really do. So we'll see. It, it all, in my opinion, it all depends on, on how his body's feeling and then whether his, whether his game is, is he feels his game's up to snuff because that place can make if your game's not right it can make you look real foolish yeah real quick it's i i just don't know what happened from jamaica or the bahamas to to tory it just just looked like it something changed he looks so good Uh, in the bahamas i I, I just i think it's one of those well it's the same thing that happened to me Quite mm-hmm. honestly, and what I tried to explain on Golf Central a couple of weeks ago when we talked about it when he said he wasn't going to play Bay Hill, I think it was, he came out and announced that. Um, I, I, I think what happened is, is that whenever you've had multiple surgeries on one part of your body, mm-hmm. you, you don't know how that's going to react day to day, let alone week to week. And it happened to my hand. I'd wake up one day and my, I'd get out to the range and the hand's perfect and everything's going great. And I'm striping it and I can hit all the shots. The next day I wake up and I, and I can barely hold on to the golf club. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dead serious. Um, doing this week in, week out. I think it's the same for his back. I don't, it, it's, it's so up in the air. 
the, the back is compromised. His back is compromised. And it's compromised, in my opinion, fairly severely based yeah. on the fact that he just, you, when you've had three surgeries, based on my knowledge, I've had four surgeries on one part of my body and I'm missing bones in my left hand. It's where I can't play anymore. He's had three, three micro disectomies on his back. He doesn't, I don't think he knows how that thing's going to react from day to day. Yeah. I, and I think he's trying to learn how it's going to react. Is there a pattern? And I thought that, you know, I think he was being very aggressive with his scheduling, in my opinion, um, going, trying to go to the Middle East and all that. And I, I applaud him for, for thinking that he could do it. But I was a little skeptical about the, the scheduling when I saw it. I'm like, mm, man, you got to hop on a plane for 17 hours. That's not great for the backs. And, uh, you know, Tori was so damp and cold, it couldn't have been good either. Yeah. I mean, like, you know. I, I, was out there and, I was out there and followed him and watched him there doing live golf. Yeah, and it was, it was, uh, um, it was cold. It was damp. Um, and uh, those conditions aren't great for a back either. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, uh, we want to get you out of here and not take up too much of your time. Uh, you've been more than generous. We, we have a, a closing segment we do uh, – overrated underrated and we're just going to give you five rapid fire uh questions here um okay. seminal uh seminal seminal golf club yep uh underrated underrated okay so it's Phenomenal. it's Phenomenal up spot. up into in your my top, top in my top 10 okay okay um practice rounds overrated overrated I imagine Overrated. as you become a, a veteran on tour, they become less and less important. They're, they're, they're underrated as a rookie, and then every year after that, you're better off just taking a wedge and a putter and walking around and saving your body. Maybe hit some shots on the par threes or on a tough driving hole here and there. But other than that, just pitch and putt around the greens, man. Okay. Equipment. Equipment's overrated. Overrated. Yeah, it's not going to help. It's not going to. It's not going to make your game that much better if you don't practice. You got to practice. You got to. Well, I'll tell you what's underrated: lessons from a good teacher. That's underrated. I, Equipment's overrated. Lessons from a good teacher. Underrated. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, Phil Mickelson, as a oh. in a career sense. Car underrated Under underrated by a, by a long shot underrated people don't understand the man's brilliant you know I, I phil's one of my favorite people in the world and um and you know I, I used to play practice rounds with him back in the day uh in major championships i played four or five with him between 04 and 07 when i was playing in majors and we were with the same management company so we'd play together and um uh the guy, I learned a lot from him, um, but but he's but he. I think his career's been underrated. To be to be quite honest, I don't think people have have given him the due, and it's due, it's mainly because of Tiger. What Tiger did, mm -hmm. what Tiger did. Tiger made everybody look less than uh, less than stellar. Uh, he made us all look foolish at times. There's no doubt because of his greatness. Mm -hmm. um, but but by no means do I think that that diminished Phil's career in, in any way, shape, or form. The guy's the guy's underrated, I think, um, for what he's done and who he is and what he's become. And a real quick side note, because we were we were we were texting back and forth a little bit uh, before here, when in regards to 
uh, a young gentleman on the tour by the name of Grayson Murray, who I, who I who's made who's made a name for himself a little bit, maybe not such a great way on the tour um, with uh, with some of the stuff he said in regards to the world rankings and so on and so forth, and maybe to some of the other tours. Phil, I would remember playing a practice round with Phil back in I can't remember what I was. I was actually I think I was a top fifty player in the world this time, and I was I was complaining about something. I wasn't happy and about this, that, or the other thing, about access to this tournament or that tournament. And I'd been under my breath and quietly complaining to my caddy and this and that for about four or five holes. And Phil finally looks at me and goes, Overholzer, shut up. I'm tired of listening to you talk about that. I go, I'm taken aback by it. I'm like, what? And he's like, he's like, if you don't like your lot in life, just play better, period. And I didn't talk to him for about two holes because I was so ticked off mm -hmm. at him for saying that. But the fact is, is he was dead on right. And that's my, that would be my advice, I guess, to, to Mr. Grayson Murray. If you don't like your lot in life, play better golf. It's that simple. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that... and, and th that's what I learned from Phil, and that's what I'd like to impart on to Grayson Murray if, he ever, if this ever gets to Grayson. The um, that's the thing I think about a lot is you know when it, I you know I play in amateur stuff and people come off the course and moan about different things and it you know something that I've you know started to take hold of is like you know what play better like and I say it to myself yeah. all the time it's like you know oh I you know I missed that I had that putt lip out like it's like well you shouldn't have been anywhere near the number anyways just play better yeah exactly right exactly right it, that's that's the thing. There's no use complaining. There's zero use complaining. And I was, I was a, I was a plus ten complainer at, at times in my career. There's no doubt. I'm, I'll, I'll freely admit that. Um, but I, the less complaining, the, the weeks I did, the less complaining, the better I played. Mm -hmm. Period. It's, uh, uh, and and Grayson, Grayson will figure that out. In my opinion, he will figure out that uh, to let his clubs do the talking and to just, just keep your keep your nose clean, keep your mouth shut, and go play golf. I, you know, he, I, I watched him play in Columbus last year at a web.com. I followed him for 18 holes and, and walked away. I was blown away by his game. He drives it long. He putts well. You know, he, he's got so much potential. But you, in last year on the web.com, he, he's not on Twitter at all. He's not doing anything. He's keeping his, he's just playing yeah. golf and he finishes, finishes second on their money list, you know, so. I think he's got yeah. to keep his head down and uh, and and play and golf. You know, don't. And I, I agree with you. It, it, uber talented, uber talented. I mean, the, the the sky's the limit for the kid as long as he, like I said, keeps his nose clean, keeps his mouth shut, learn the golf courses, and just concentrate on your game. I mean, I, if I was his management team, I'd grab him by the back of the neck and I'd say, "Son, off Twitter now." Yeah. I mean, literally. Get rid of the account. If you can't handle it, get rid of the account, cancel it, and just focus on golf. This is his. This is going to be his livelihood if he wants it to be. And he's got a choice he can make right now on how good he wants to be. And spending time getting into arguments, in my opinion, online with guys uh, about things that really don't matter, in my opinion, um, uh, aren't going to help him get to the goal that, that, that I believe he can reach, yeah. which is being a PGA Tour winner. Yeah, I uh, I walked away thinking like this kid could be rookie of the year. So you know, it's uh, he uh, hopefully will uh, he'll kind of uh, shape up here and 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 get. I, you know, you want you want the kid to succeed. Nobody wants anybody to fail. 
And no, uh, no, no, no. And no. I think if no, he, no, no, I don't like to see anybody fail. Yeah, if he uh, if he can, he's got he's got so much game. Um, so last overrated, underrated bucket hat. <laughs> oh my gosh, Kirk Triplett will kill me for this, but overrated. Overrated. All right. Overrated. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the bucket hat. It's uh, yeah, I respect the it's bucket bad, hat. It's a bad. It's a bad look. Hey, look, if you got some skin issues, absolutely, you got to wear it. Go for it. It's just, it's. I don't think it's a great look. All right. Well, uh, Aaron, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, we'll look forward to. I know you're. Uh, you got anything to play? I know you're going to be on Golf Channel a lot in the in the upcoming weeks. So, you know, uh, anything you want to you want to put out there? Um. No. Yeah. I'll be. I'll be. Uh, you, you, people are going to hear and see a lot of me over the next seven out of eight weeks, as I only have one week off in those seven out of eight weeks. So. Um, come on over to the channel. Uh, I hope you. I hope people enjoy the coverage that we uh, that we try to give them every week and the analysis that we try to give them every week. It's uh, it's a lot of fun doing it, and I'm glad that uh, that we try to create healthy discussion mm-hmm. with uh, with the stuff that we say. Between doesn't matter. No to Brandel, Frank, David, Duvall, myself, Trip Eisenhower, um, Jim Gallagher, all the guys. Um, and, and we're going to try to do our best to do the same thing next week. I think we got a good slate of shows next week for, for the Masters, for live from the Masters. Awesome, awesome. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you on, on Golf Channel, and then uh, everybody's a great Twitter follow. Follow uh, Aaron on Twitter, and, uh, you know, he, uh, we'll talk to you soon. And, um, yeah, hopefully it'll be a great week. Yeah, it will be. There's no doubt. Thanks a lot, Andy. I appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Bye.